0: Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope
1: you do, too.
2: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Obama outlines bold plans for comprehensive action on climate change and lays down a marker on the Keystone XL pipeline.
3: Allowing the Keystone pipeline to be built requires a finding that doing so would be in our nation's interest and our national interest will be served only if this project does not significantly exacerbate the problem of carbon pollution.
4: He has articulated what might be the Obama environmental doctrine, which is that it's against the interest of the United States to pursue activities that will make global warming worse.
2: We take a broad look at the energy and climate actions the president is proposing. Also the search for tiny creatures lurking in leaf litter. That and more on Living on Earth, stick around.
5: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers
2: of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In his fifth year as president, Barack Obama has unveiled a comprehensive and detailed plan to address climate change. On June 25th, a hot and sweaty day in Washington, the president promised leadership at home and abroad despite partisan divisions that block congressional action. Mr. Obama's vision ranges from controlling power plant emissions to boosting renewables and efficiency and helping cities and states prepare for the effects of the changing climate. Joining us now is David Hawkins, the Director of Climate Programs for the Natural Resources Defense Council. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. Good to be here. Well, first off, what did you make of this speech? Uh, Was this the climate champion many people have been waiting for?
4: This was a grand slam home run of a speech. The president articulated why we need to work urgently on the problem of climate disruption, and he identified sensible things that can be done that will not only help us slow the damage from climate change, but uh, will provide a path for economic renaissance for the United States and deliver health benefits to the people in the United States at the same time. So he made a a great case. And then the third element uh, was the content of the action plan, where he is making as his centerpiece going after the largest remaining unregulated carbon polluter in the United States, the uh, dirty
2: power sector. So this was a great speech. All right, let's take a listen uh, to the bit from the speech about the regulation of power plants.
3: So today, for the sake of our children and the health and safety of all Americans, I'm directing the Environmental Protection Agency to put an end to the limitless dumping of carbon pollution from our power plants and complete new pollution standards for both new and existing power plants.
2: From your perspective, Dave Hawkins, this is a pretty big
4: deal, huh? It's a huge deal. We've been trying at NRDC to get a president of the United States to take this step for 20 years, and Obama is the one who has stepped up and committed to do it. It flows from a Supreme Court decision in 2007 that declared that carbon dioxide is a pollutant under the Clean Air Act, despite President George W. Bush's uh, claim that it was not. And the court clarified that EPA has full authority under the 40-year-old Clean Air Act to regulate carbon pollution from sources like automobiles, trucks, buses, power plants, refineries, and other major polluters
2: now many people weren't expecting president obama to talk about the keystone XL pipeline proposal in this speech but he came right out and said he wouldn't approve the pipeline if it had significant impacts on our climate let's take a listen
3: i know there's been for example a lot of controversy surrounding the proposal uh, to build a pipeline the keystone pipeline that would carry oil from canadian tar sands down to refineries in the gulf and the state department is going through Uh, the final stages of evaluating the proposal. That's how it's always been done. But I do want to be clear. Allowing the Keystone Pipeline to be built requires a finding that doing so would be in our nation's interest. And our national interest will be served only if this project does not significantly exacerbate the problem of carbon pollution. The net effects of the pipeline's impact The net effects of the pipeline's impact on our climate will be absolutely critical to determining whether this project is allowed to go forward. It's relevant.
2: We're going to take a listen now, Dave Hawkins, to Michael Bruhn. He's the executive director of the Sierra Club who got arrested in front of the White House protesting Keystone. He has a pretty strong reaction.
6: Well, this was another one of the bombshells of the president's speech in that he basically said he's not going to approve the pipeline because the pipeline won't be in the country's interests if it makes climate change much worse. And the reason why the Sierra Club and hundreds of thousands of people across the country have mobilized to stop this pipeline is because it will do just that. It's a pipeline taking oil from the dirtiest source of oil on the planet And uh, right at a time when we're using less and less oil as a country, it would take our country in the wrong direction. And what the president said in his speech is that we need to move quickly to invest in clean, zero-carbon energy technologies, solar, wind, advanced batteries, green transportation, using conservation and efficiency more effectively. So we're more confident than ever that this is a pipeline that will actually never be built.
2: How much of a pledge to stop Keystone was his remarks? You've been down in front of the White House demonstrating. I believe you even got arrested in protest of Keystone. Is this, is this enough for you?
6: No, no. We, we will not rest in this, uh, in this effort until the pipeline is firmly rejected.
2: So Michael Bruin says Keystone won't get built. What do you think, Dave Hawkins?
4: Well, the president's Keystone remarks are another very big deal. In fact, it's even bigger than Keystone itself. What the president said is that there's a new test of what is in the national interest, and that is whether an activity makes global warming worse. And he has articulated what might be the Obama environmental doctrine, which is that it's against the interest of the United States to pursue activities that will make global warming worse. That is a very big deal. As far as the Keystone Pipeline itself is concerned, He has set up a test for that pipeline. Will it make global warming worse? We think the facts are clear. It will, and it will flunk that test.
2: Now, the uh, president asserted his commitment to using natural gas as a bridge fuel to a clean economy, but natural gas still has carbon in it. And what about the problems with fracking, Dave Hawkins? Uh, Well, the good news about natural gas is that it
4: has half the carbon pollution of coal. And the bad news about natural gas is that it has half the carbon pollution of coal. We can use some natural gas, but if we use a lot of it, in order to protect the climate, we're going to have to capture the carbon from that natural gas use. And we have to pay attention, much better attention, to how it's produced. We have to make sure that the wells that are drilled to produce this gas are built more solidly and are leak-proof. We have to make sure that the water waste is handled better than it is. We have to make sure that drilling companies uh, have better respect for the interests and wishes of the communities in which uh, they wish to
2: operate. Michael Bruhn also had some things to say about natural gas.
6: That was the one misstep in the president's plan, the most significant one. Um, We think natural gas is not a bridge fuel, but more a, a gangplank to a destabilized climate. We need to be able to move beyond fossil fuels, and we have to acknowledge that that doesn't happen overnight. But what we should understand is that as we move off of coal or as we decrease our reliance on dirty oil, We can't over-rely on natural gas. What we need to do is we need to be leapfrogging over dirty fuels and going all in on clean energy.
2: Now, some say that natural gas has been undercutting the development of renewables because it's become so cheap. Dave Hawkins, what do you make of that? Does it make sense to be looking to natural gas without, a, say, a carbon tax, something to make the carbon in natural gas more and more expensive over time? Well, natural gas
4: is very much a double-edged sword. Um, It will beat out dirty coal, but it will also beat out clean renewables. So yes, we need a carbon pollution standard, and done right, a carbon pollution standard can help adjust the relationship between natural gas and the competition so that
2: it continues to beat out coal, but no longer beats out renewables. Now, the president said he's pushing hard for more investment in solar, wind, and other renewables. He says he wants 20% of power that the federal government uses to come from clean sources by 2020. Uh, Dave Hawkins, uh, that's too ambitious, not ambitious enough. Uh, It's a nice
4: target, but again, it points out the difficulty we have when we don't actually directly value the carbon pollution, because if we did, then we wouldn't need a mandate for the federal government to use a certain amount of renewables. There would be a market reason to do it. We'd be saving money. Right now, we're spending money. We're just not spending it on the power part of our our checkbook. We're spending it on the health part of our checkbook. We're spending it on, you know, the impacts on our kids uh, that are going to suffer as a result of climate disruption. So we do have to value the carbon pollution from the power that we consume. And the sooner we do that comprehensively, the better. Now,
2: President Obama talked about the U.S. leading the world on climate change, uh, Dave Hawkins, and helping poorer countries to develop sustainably. Let's have a listen. Today,
3: I'm calling for an end of public financing for new coal plants overseas, unless they deploy carbon capture technologies, or there's no other viable way for the poorest countries to generate electricity. And I urge other countries to join this effort.
4: Dave Hawkins, what do you make of that? I think that's a very important uh, step. The United States has been in the past a promoter of dirty coal plants overseas, and those dirty coal plants are going to lock us into a climate disruption future, so it doesn't make any sense to do it. Now, he made an exception in his statement for coal plants that are equipped with carbon capture and storage, and if that helps deploy that important technology, that's a good, sensible step to take. And he made an exception for the poorest countries where uh, there isn't another viable option. And. It again uh, strikes me as a sensible exception. We hope that it will be the exception rather than the rule, but uh, that is something that uh, should be judged on the merits and the facts of each
2: case. The president gave a lot of credit to old guard Republicans who took climate change seriously but has no patience for climate skeptics.
3: Nobody has a monopoly on what is a very hard problem, but I don't have much patience for anyone who denies that this challenge is real. We don't have time for a meeting of the Flat Earth Society.
4: I think what the president was saying was that uh, people who are denying the reality of climate change are doing a disservice to people alive today and doing a disservice to people who will be born tomorrow. We do not have time to continue to argue about whether this is a problem because every day that we continue that argument, we increase the size of the problem. I like to say about carbon pollution, once we've emitted, we are committed. Every day that we put a ton of carbon pollution into the air, we add to the damage of climate disruption that
2: our kids are gonna have to live with. The president spoke at Georgetown University to a mostly student audience, and he called on them to take on climate change. Let's listen to what he said.
3: Convince those in power to reduce our carbon pollution. Push your own communities to adopt smarter practices. Invest, divest, remind folks there's no contradiction between a sound environment and strong economic growth, and remind everyone who represents you at every level of government that sheltering future generations against the ravages of climate change is a prerequisite for your vote. Make yourself heard on this issue.
2: David Hawkins, what do you think of this? The shout-out on divestment.
4: Uh, yes, I was at the speech as well, and I was surrounded by enthusiastic students. Uh, it was it was a great event. And I think it was quite interesting and quite intentional that uh, the president mentioned divestment. As we know, uh, Bill McKibben has been leading an effort to uh, get uh, universities and colleges, especially, to divest their investments in fossil fuels. And I think that the president gave an appropriate shout-out and positive acknowledgement for that effort. What about putting the weight on fixing this problem, though, with kids? Isn't it our generation's problem? Well, we're the responsible adults, supposedly, but uh, we elect people to office, and today's college students vote for those same people. Today's college students can be a very important uh, source of political pressure on uh, the know-nothings and deniers who are still far too prevalent in our Congress. They have the potential to actually uh, do something to force the adults
2: to start behaving like adults. Now, we spoke with some college students about the speech. Let's
7: take a listen. My name is Jess Grady Benson, and I'm a rising senior at Pitzer College working for the Fossil Fuel Divestment Campaign. I think that there's a very prevalent tendency to put the emphasis of the climate movement on young people right now. There are so many incredible youth activists out there all around the world doing amazing work right now. That being said, I think that's a little bit of a cop-out to neglect the responsibility of other generations, of generations that have come before us and put our globe in the position that it's in right now and the climate in a very dangerous tipping point.
2: Before you go, Jessa, uh, tell me, what kind of overall grade would you give President Obama for his speech?
7: I'd have to say I'm a pretty tough grader. I think that he made a lot of very important points, but I'd have to say... For our national climate movement and for the global climate movement, there's so much more to be done. So I would have to give him about a C or a C minus.
2: David Hawkins, all in all, what grade would you give the president on this speech? The
4: grade for this speech, I would say, is an A. Whether the final grade for the course turns out to be an A, an A+, plus, or a B, or lower, will depend on what is done to follow up in the next three and a half years before he leaves office. He's got a lot of work to do to carry out the steps that he's outlined in this speech. We applaud him for the speech,
2: and we'll applaud him even harder when he gets the work done. David Hawkins is Director of Climate Programs for the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks so much, David. You're very welcome, Steve. Nice to be with you. You can hear the president's full speech and read his plan on our website, LOE.org. Coming up, around the world in 584 days with just the power of the sun. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. When the price of oil shot up a few years back, the large freighters that ply the oceans found they could save a lot of polluting bunker oil if they slowed down, when there was no hurry to deliver their cargo. So what if slow boats used no fossil fuels at all? One example is currently traveling up the U.S. Atlantic coast, the world's largest solar-powered boat. The experimental ship made history by circumnavigating the globe using only sun power. Though it took a year and a half to make the trip. Now, the ship, the Turinor Planet Solar, is not a freighter. It's more of a science research vessel, and now it's collecting data on the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic Ocean. The Turinor Planet Solar recently put into Boston Harbor, and Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom went aboard.
8: Hi, Bobby. I'm Rachel. Welcome on board. How are you today? Good,
0: thank you. Good. Rachel Bro de Pucredon is head of communications for Planet Solar. It's an exceptionally hot sunny day in Boston Harbor, perfect conditions for showing off the world's largest solar-powered boat. It's 101 feet long and 49 feet wide. The top deck of the white catamaran is covered with black solar panels. Inside, though, it looks just like a modern functional ship.
8: So you are standing right now in what we call the living room. That's where everything happened that is social, with the lunch and the events and the press conference and all that.
0: The MS turnor Planet Solar gets part of its name from Tolkien's saga Lord of the Rings. Turnor means the power of the sun. This sun-powered ship was designed by an engineer from New Zealand, built in Germany, and is now home to five crew and four scientists from Europe.
8: And here you go to the very tiny little kitchen, because we don't realize, but from Miami to New York, it's 160 mils. So our cook has a lot of work to do in here. And the only thing that is not powered by the sun is the oven, it's gas. But everything else on this boat is powered by the sun. So whatever we plug on it, hair dryer or a computer, it becomes solar. Mm-hmm. So, we want to go now up to the top of the boat, be careful, it's a stair.
0: Rachel leads the way up the stairs to the top of the boat. The entire deck is covered in solar panels, 38,000 solar cells in all. When it's at sea, extra panels slide out on each side like wings to a total surface area of more than 5,500 square feet. So usually you have like
8: two tennis courts of solar cells that you don't see, but even though it's huge now. Yeah,
0: it really looks huge. It looks very space-age, you know?
8: It is a spaceship. But it's a spaceship with an average speed of five knots, so you have the impression it's just gonna take off like a plane, but it's like, ooh, very smooth and slow and super silent. That's the great thing. When you are on board, you just don't realize the engines are running. And the engines keep running around the clock. So During the day, we charge the lithium batteries that are on board, so we can navigate through the night as well, and actually we can even navigate up to 72 hours in bad weather if there is no sun.
0: So if there's no sun, you're still good for three days. Yeah, exactly. 10 tons of lithium batteries act as ballast to keep the ship stable, half in each of the two pontoons. They can store a megawatt of energy, enough to power a small house for three months. Small house. I don't know, maybe not a US house. (laughs) The cockpit is recessed into the deck and shielded with tinted glass. Navigation instruments and electronic screens surround the captain's seat.
9: My name is Daboville. My first name is Gérard, and uh, as you can hear, I'm from France, and I am the captain of this uh, strange vessel.
0: Gérard d'Abeauville was the first person to row solo across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. He says the world's largest solar-powered boat attracts a lot of attention wherever it goes.
9: Uh, i tell you a story. We had to stop in Morocco outside of the port because the tide was not good, so we had to stay here for a few hours, and we were in a distance from the shore, and it was a bit misty, so people could see something, but not really what it was. And several called the police and said, there is an airplane which has landed into the water, onto <laughs> the water, <laughs> what should we do?
0: <laughs> it is a, a sort of a space-age-looking thing, you know, it's all covered in these black panels.
9: Well, it's probably very strange-looking. One day into the Mediterranean, we passed a ship, and uh, the chap called us on the radio. It was a Filipino guy, and say, said, Sir, may I ask you a question? I said, yes, of course. What is it? Is it a spaceship? <laughs>
0: Captain Doubleville calls the ship an ambassador for solar energy. It's also uniquely qualified for research, which is the main purpose of this summer-long voyage. Scientists from the University of Geneva in Switzerland are on board to study the Gulf Stream. Because the ship has no emissions, Scientists can collect data completely untainted by exhaust. Martin Beniston is head of the Institute of Environmental Sciences at the University of Geneva.
10: And so the overall uh, goals of this uh, expedition using this planet solar solar boat is to look at some of the more subtle interactions between the atmosphere and the ocean as we go along the Gulf Stream and we move out into the colder waters of Newfoundland.
0: Beniston describes the Gulf Stream as a huge river of heat that moves north from the Caribbean. He says Europeans are particularly interested in the Gulf Stream because it has a dramatic effect on air temperatures in Europe. The UK for instance is roughly on the same latitude as northern Canada but has a mild winter similar to Maryland.
10: The reason why it's uh, more temperate in Western Europe than here in New England especially in winter is simply because you've got this heat from the ocean. The uh, winds that uh, blow off the ocean will transfer this heat to the continent, so keeping the temperatures uh, fully 20 or 30 degrees uh, milder.
0: But scientists are concerned that melting Arctic ice due to climate change could alter the path of the Gulf Stream.
10: If the Gulf Stream were to change its behavior because of climate change, the Gulf Stream could actually slow down to such an extent that cold conditions would come back to both sides of the Atlantic in a way. We don't believe that's actually going to happen this century, even though it's physically plausible.
0: Researchers are also collecting data on phytoplankton, the tiny microorganisms that form the base of the food chain and are a critical component for sequestering carbon.
11: Phytoplankton in the ocean fix about half of all the carbon on the planet, so they buffer climate change.
0: Bastian Eberlings is a professor of microbial ecology at the University of Geneva.
11: Phytoplankton, in a way, they face a challenge in the ocean because they need light for their energy, and the light is only available in the upper part of the ocean, so you need to be close to the surface. But phytoplankton also needs nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen, and they tend to come from deep down in the ocean in a process known as upwelling, so it's the mixing, it's the physical mixing of the ocean that combines the resources that phytoplankton need to grow.
0: As the ocean warms at the surface, it inhibits the upwelling.
11: The nutrients that are still deep down in the ocean, they're not available to the same extent that they were in the past for phytoplankton growth. So, If phytoplankton is unhappy because of what climate change is doing to their life in the ocean, it may actually speed up climate change because there'll be more CO2 in the air.
0: The scientific team on the Turinor Planet Solar is researching all these questions as the voyage continues up the east coast to Canada and then Iceland. They'll finally head back to Europe at the end of the summer. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Vascom soaking up the sun in Boston Harbor.
2: They say that a picture is worth a thousand words, and the city of Oberlin, Ohio, has taken that to heart. It's pioneering a new website that uses entertaining graphics to show the entire town's electricity use, water flow, and even water quality, all in real time. The developers call it the Oberlin Environmental Dashboard, and hope it will become a model for motivating community-wide energy conservation, not just in Oberlin, but across the region. John Peterson teaches environmental studies at Oberlin College and is one of the developers. And I went to see him to find out exactly what an environmental dashboard is.
12: Well, an environmental dashboard is basically a technology and approach to taking information about resource flows that take place in the world around us and translating that into a form that's easily accessible to people who might not be so technical so that they can understand the ways in which they're engaging with resource flows in their decision-making process. In other words, every picture tells a story? That's absolutely right. We're trying to create these sort of compelling animated graphic that convey to people the way in which their resource consumption is actually affecting the world around them.
2: So what's different about the Oberlin dashboard project that's different from uh, other visual displays that people have tried?
12: So a lot of people out there are beginning to develop new technologies to monitor and display energy flows, electricity flows within buildings, and there's been some really neat developments along that line in the last 10 years. What separates what we're doing from what other people are doing is that we're trying to monitor not just resource flows in individual buildings, but resource flows at the whole community scale as well as environmental quality.
2: Well, let's go online and take a look at your site. And if you're at home listening and you want to do this too, it's OberlinDashboard.org.
12: Okay, let's take a cruise through here. So what are we seeing here, John? This is the citywide dashboard you're looking at, and basically what we've tried to do is create an animated cartoon model of a community. So you're looking at the freshwater treatment plant, the wastewater treatment plant, the electricity production facility, the river that drains our community, and you're watching electrons flow down power lines, you're watching water flow down pipes through this model.
2: And there's there's black smoke coming from the power plant.
12: There is black smoke coming from the power plant. Well, like many communities in the Midwest, we're still getting a lot of our power from coal-fired power plants. But you also, if you look closely at there, you see a spinning wind turbine, and you see a solar panel there. We're getting our power from those, too. And let's go to straight water here. All right, so now what we're looking at is... How many gallons per person are being used within Oberlin right now? So we're seeing 2.2 gallons. That's not a whole lot of water being used per person per hour. But that's going to change over the course of the day. So if you look at that, you know, in the morning you're going to see higher use because people are taking showers. There are times of day when our little bit of light industry within Oberlin is going to be using more water. Let's look at electricity. Total
2: city electricity use, watts per person. It's almost 2,000 watts per person right now.
12: Yeah, that's a very large number. What you have to consider with a number like that is that's including the industry we have in in Oberlin. But it does give you a sense of, you know, what's the sort of amount of total energy that's being used to support the whole community. So tell me, what are the values that we're seeing here on the right-hand side? We're looking at um, water quality right now, for instance. So you're seeing how deep the water is in the local river. So that's going to change based on when the last rainstorm was. You're looking at dissolved oxygen. You're seeing turbidity. That's how much cloudiness there is in the water. So that's telling you something about how much soil there is running off from agricultural fields. And you're seeing pH, which is also a basic indicator of water health. So, so far, what's been the response in the Oberlin community to this? I think our best response has really been among school age children. Part of that is because we have one of our displays is, you know, very prominently located in the hall of Prospect Elementary, which is uh, three through five public school. And we really do actually see children as being central to this process, not just as recipients of information, but one of the things that we're most excited about with Environmental Dashboard is this community voices section where we're taking images and messages drawn from community members and then displaying them to the community. So the feedback is not just about telling you how much resources you're consuming, but it's about asking you What are you doing? What are you thinking? How do you think the world should be in the future? And so when we take the voices of children and images of children, we find that they have a particularly powerful resonance with the rest of the community.
2: All right, let's click on community voices. So here's a kid at Prospect School. What does he say?
12: When we went to Plum Creek, we measured the water's dissolved oxygen. There needs to be oxygen so, just like us, fish and other organisms can breathe. You know, that's a kid who's probably not spent a whole lot of time at Plum Creek, our little stream, before. He goes down there, you know, he makes this sort of realization about something that's important to organisms in the world. And then we find a way to put that up on a screen and and kind of celebrate that realization.
2: Here's Lillian, fourth grade at the Prospect School.
12: I love gardening because you don't have to go to the store to buy stuff. You just pick it and eat it. I'm with Lillian. (laughs) So am I. How do you hope people will use the dashboard? Well, our goal ultimately is to change people's thinking and behavior. But when we think about behavior change, we're interested not just in people turning off lights, but we're interested in helping people to understand their decisions in the context of the community. So we're just as interested in having people think about, you know, how they're interacting with other community members, how they're voting in local elections. We want them to think about all of those things as they relate to resource use. But when people look at the dashboard immediately, what we're most interested in is engaging them. So we need to engage educate, motivate, and empower them to make decisions in their lives which are consistent with the kind of changes we need to make to bring about a more sustainable relationship between humans and the rest of the natural world.
2: John Peterson is a professor of environmental studies at Oberlin College. Thanks for taking the time today, John.
12: It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Steve.
2: Coming up, the folks who admire some creatures many love
5: to hate. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
2: It's Living on Earth, I'm Steve Kerwood. Just ahead, a race to discover some of the tiniest animals. But first, this note on emerging science from Erin Weeks.
1: They've got blood-red eyes, translucent orange-veined wings, and they're in frenzied pursuit of mates. 17-year cicadas are buzzing up and down the East Coast, and as their season comes to a close, they leave behind billions of large, smelly corpses. A team of scientists at North Carolina State University is taking advantage of their deaths to test a theory, and they want help. They've asked folks in cicada hotspots to collect the dead insects and mail them to their lab in Raleigh. You see, there's a lot you can learn about cicadas by measuring the asymmetry, or crookedness, of their bodies. In 1996, still in nymph form, this year's brood of cicadas burrowed underground beneath trees to begin the long transformation into adulthood. In the 17 years since then, some forests have been replaced by roads and buildings trapping nymphs in the earth. Others face stresses such as pollution and extreme temperatures. These conditions can interrupt normal insect development and cause bugs to grow a little bit off-kilter. To gauge just how much urbanization impacts cicadas, the NCSU team wants to measure these lopsided quirks in wing, vein, and leg sizes, and compare specimens from rural, suburban, and urban locations. So, if you live in the cicada zone, you too can contribute a few bodies in the name of citizen science. Happy hunting! That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Aaron Weeks.
2: There's more about the Cicada Research Project at our website, LOE.org. So, the 17-year cicadas may be leaving behind their smelly corpses like so much trash as they complete their life cycle, but there are some people who regard whole categories of animals as trash. Dave Johnson is an instructional designer at the Institute for Learning and Teaching at Colorado State University, and he helped edit a book called Trash Animals, Nature's Filthy, Feral, Invasive, and Unwanted Species. He says he became fascinated with these creatures after he started catching one of America's least desired fish. I was interested in trash animals because
13: I had been clerking in a fly shop, and uh, fly fishing is all about trout. I went out to uh, fly fish for white bass, and so I hooked probably about a 15-pound carp, which was much bigger than any white bass that I'd ever caught. Wherever I moved, I would always look for places that potentially had carp. And the reactions that I got from other anglers, they were either very angry that carp were even in those waters, or they dismissed it outright as some kind of uh, lunatic activity. On catching carp, did you keep them and eat them? I did once. One day I caught a nice-sized carp, about 22 pounds, just north of Fort Collins here. And my daughter was with me, and she said, Dad, can we take this fish home and eat it? And and I said, well, at this point I, I sort of feel obligated. And so I have a book that explains step by step how to clean them and I worked on one side of the carp and it took me 45 minutes, which is a lot longer than it takes to prepare um, any other kind of fish. And so I then flipped the carp over because I was impatient and filleted it just like I would any other fish. And we went inside, and we cooked the one side that we had prepared properly, and it was fine. It almost tasted like catfish. And we prepared the other side, and it stank up the house for three days. Oh, my. So I almost thought about throwing the pan away. And that's an interesting thing about the history of carp introduction. Just within about 10 or 15 years, people had decided um, that it was a big mistake because of the flavor of the
2: fish. Trash is a powerful word in our language. As a verb, it means to be, you know, violent. And then also we use it as a pejorative to refer to people. I mean, there's trailer trash, white trash. A trash animal has everything to do
13: with the way that humans value other species. So the uh, the first mention of a trash animal in print comes from a document, and it was introduced to Parliament in 1749. It was called The Wealth of Great Britain in the Ocean. And one of their assessors noted that the Dutch had three kinds of marked herring. Two were valuable and the last was called trash. And so the way that people have been valuing animals, whether that has to do with economics, whether it has to do with aesthetics, whether they just think they're pretty or desirable for anglers, whether or not they fight or whether they jump, we tend to make these categories for animals. And one category is a trash animal.
2: Now, of course, in nature, there's no such thing as trash it's just a resource that's being used by whatever is going to use it next but us humans we have this concept of trash and it's largely cultural my co-editor and i we
13: use this term as a as we say in the book as a tool for analysis it's a way to really think about the way that we treat animals because if we do have so-called trash animals then we are not only assigning them value, but we're also thinking about ways that we're going to act toward those animals. We're thinking about ways that
2: policy might be enforced. So let's talk a bit about the different animals that made it into your book, everything from gulls to wolves to prairie dogs and pigeons, of course. For example, how did the Canada goose become
13: a trash animal? This is a really interesting story. In Bernie Ketchenbach's essay... Um, in the book, I think, is one of my favorite. I mean, it tells the story of of a time in the early 20th century when migratory Canada geese um, had almost become extinct, probably due to habitat loss, um, because we were draining wetlands um, at the time, and then probably also due to hunting. So there was a massive public relations campaign where um, any farmer, basically anybody, could go and get Canada geese, and they could raise them in their backyards and then release them into the wild. And this was going to save the population. But what happened through this process is that these
2: people who were raising
13: geese and releasing them were actually changing their behavior.
2: So this is a native species here in the United States, the Canada goose. And because people successfully kept it from the brink of extinction, we consider it trash.
13: Yes, because there are too many. I've even heard of Canada geese referred to as sky carp. So we still have migratory Canada geese, but we have to distinguish between those geese And the geese that visit our golf courses and our city parks, the ones that never really go anywhere. If they do migrate, it's
2: across town. Let's talk about coyotes and and prairie dogs. I mean, those are native to uh, North America, and yet they're in your trash animal anthology as well. Why is that? The way that humans have changed the landscape
13: um, has either been detrimental for prairie dogs or it has helped the coyote. Um, In regards to prairie dogs, um, there's a lot of mythology I grew up in rural Texas and part of a ranching family. And even though we don't have prairie dogs in Texas, um, I'd always heard that prairie dog holes were dangerous because horses and cattle could break their legs in them. Although when I asked my uncle, who drives all over the West hauling cattle, if he had ever seen this happen, um, he had to admit to me that no, he hadn't. He'd just heard the stories. So in that respect, there's a story about prairie dogs competing with humans In that case, it's, you know, the raising of livestock or the keeping of horses. Coyotes, um, because we eradicated wolves, we helped increase their range and their numbers all across the United States. It's easy to kill animals that, to us, have no value. Even those that I knew when I was growing up who would go out and kill as many coyotes as they could, they still had respect for other species, and so the way that humans value animals determines in a large degree how we treat them. And it seems like an obvious statement, but the contradictions are also kind of interesting. Because on one hand, we don't feel bad at all about killing a whole bunch of coyotes. Uh, But on the other hand, if someone were to shoot my mother's cattle, everyone would be angry about this. As a kid growing up, you probably shot a lot of coyotes. How do you feel about that now? Um, I feel awfully guilty about it. So at the time that we were calling up coyotes with a collar um, and shooting them, we were thinking that we were protecting our cattle. When in reality, we weren't helping ourselves out at all because a female coyote can triple her litter sizes within a generation or two if the pack is threatened. So by killing a few coyotes, we were only
2: making this perceived problem worse. You know, I suppose from the perspective of the animals, with seven billion people, there are too many people. Maybe we're trash. A lot of the qualities
13: of the animals that we call trash have a lot of the qualities that humans have. Humans invade new spaces. We tend to change the landscape. Um, We make the landscape suit us, and that often crowds out other species. We out-compete them. If those species compete with us for resources, we either use what we call management
2: campaigns or we eradicate them. What risk does humanity take on for itself by considering certain other species as trash stuff to be gotten rid of violently if necessary there is a human perspective
13: involved here that sort of determines your values about some species so while an urban environmentalist probably white probably middle class thinks that reintroducing wolves to yellowstone and seeing them thrive is a really good idea there is a rancher out there who leases property next to yellowstone who is thinking this is a threat to my cattle and my way of life. It's a threat to me personally. What do you hope people will take away from this book? I really hope that they'll, they'll question their own values about animals. Again, the thing about trash animals is that it comes back to this idea that humans are placing value on species. And one of the things that we wanted to get at in the collection was to have people really think about this. You know, where did these values come from? And sometimes knowing a little bit of the history of the animal, how it got here or where it came from or whether it's native or invasive, knowing something about the animal's biology, you can start to develop an appreciation for the animal, start to see it in a new way. And we thought maybe if people can do that, they can question these values, they can question the
2: whole idea of having a trash animal in the first place. David Johnson's an instructional designer at the Institute for Learning and Teaching at Colorado State University and co editor of the book Trash Animals. Thanks so much for taking this time today, Dave. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. them or not, our whole web of life depends ultimately on the broad and amazing variety of organisms on this planet, including many has yet to identify. And among those unrecorded millions of life forms are some that inhabit a peculiar branch of the evolutionary tree that reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro recently had the chance to encounter.
14: Usually, it's easy for Louis d'Arvang to step outside onto the back doorstep of his lab in Paris and find the tiny creatures he's dedicated his life to. Yeah, yeah, there are many, many. But today, outside his lab at the National Museum of Natural History, after rooting around in a pile of leaves... Mm, usually they are here. ...he can't find any. It's no big deal. It's just too hot and dry. They'll be back. So we head inside the lab... D'arvang brings me over to his microscope and he pours the contents of a small container into a glass dish. He brings the specimen into focus and I gaze down the twin barrels of the microscope. Wow, it's yellow yellow and black, curved on itself. It's got six little legs, a pair of antennae, and it looks like a tiny shrimp or insect. It was an insect till a few years ago. Meaning that it used to be classified as an insect. Then, around 2000, some DNA work was done on these tiny animals, and they were all recategorized. It's not an insect. It's not a crustacea. It's a columbola. A massive reclassification like this is common for things like bacteria. But for animals, it's exceedingly rare. The columbula also go by a more common name, springtails, because a lot of them have a tail-like limb that allows them to spring, to jump. Many columbula have the jumping apparatus and they can jump many times their own size uh, and they jump. (laughs) The feature, though, that really makes a columbula a columbula is something called a ventral tube. A kalembola uses its ventral tube to suck up water and to attach itself to the ground. Now, d'Arvang hasn't always been a Calembola devotee. When he began his studies as a scientist over 30 years ago, he wanted to focus on beetles, but he couldn't find anyone who'd supervise a beetle project. So instead, he turned to a mentor who happened to have an interest in Calembola. And soon, because so little was known about them, he was hooked.
15: It's the pleasure to find new things outside in your environment. Is it like looking for little treasures? Yes, we expect to find something, but we don't know what we shall find.
14: Over the last several decades, scientists, including de Arvang, have continuously turned up new kinds of calembola. Right now, there are about 8,000 documented species, and there's no sign of things leveling off. Calembola are everywhere.
15: They are able to adapt to any kind of habitats. They live from the tropics to the coldest place on Earth, in the Antarctic. From the deep
14: caves to the canopy of the trees. De Arvang's traveled the world in search of calembola. He figures he's named hundreds of species, and a handful of them have been named after him. Tetracontella d'Arvengi, Nyatizatoma de Arvengi, Polionura Luisi. And over the years, Louis de Arvang seen certain types of calembola fall on hard times. His early work focused on a group of species that used to thrive on a permanent patch of snow in the Pyrenees Mountains between Spain and France. But as the temperature's gotten warmer, the snow now melts in the summer. I was studying something disappearing under our eyes. More recently, he's investigated columbula species that live on a single limestone hill in Vietnam and nowhere else. Now that hill's being blown apart to make concrete, and he's worried these kalembola may well be headed to extinction. Wherever Darvang travels, kalembola are an important part of a tiny food web of insects and spiders. But he admits that most people have no reason to care about them.
15: They are absolutely devoid of any
14: economical interest. It's like that. <laughs> there's got to be something that, that matters to you. You're very passionate about them. Yeah.
15: I don't like, uh, you know, places where there's too much competition. I think competition is not a good uh, way of life. The a good way of life is
14: solidarity. Darvang offered to show me what he meant by solidarity by introducing me to the people he mentors in his lab. His team comes from all over the world just like is kolambola. I'm
12: Charlene Janian. I'm from South Africa. Oh. My name is Mikhail in Russian, Potapov. Hey, my name is Sun Sunxin,
14: and I come from China. My name is Anne Bedos.
15: I work
5: together with Louis about Columbola also and different project.
14: I came to visit Arvang's lab late in the day. And when I left in the early evening, everybody was still there working away, not because they had to, but because they wanted to people intent on understanding something small about our world, gathered together by a man who cares as much about making a family out of his lab here in Paris as he does about the creatures they all study together. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro.
2: Our story on springtails is part of the series One Species at a Time, produced by Atlantic Public Media with support from the Encyclopedia of Life. On the next Living on Earth, what's happening under the earth in Bayou Corn, Louisiana.
8: Come home to check on the house, make sure everything was okay, and I noticed there were bubbles in the yard. You could feel the pressure of the bubbles coming out of the ground. It's
7: nerve-wracking.
2: The perils of living with a massive sinkhole. That's next time on Living on Earth. Is produced by the World Media Foundation Naomi Ehrenberg Bobby Bascom Emmett Fitzgerald Helm Palmer Ponce Rutch Aaron Weeks Adelaide Chen James Kerwood Jennifer Marquis and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show Jeff Turton is our technical director Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes you can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page it's PRI's Living on Earth and we tweet from at Living on Earth I'm Steve Kerwood thanks for listening
5: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield, working to produce healthy food for a healthy planet. stonyfield.com Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and the Town Creek Foundation.
13: PRI Public Radio International